0: So as I said, it seemed good and right to me to stick a sermon between verse 13 to 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, I, haven't, I don't think I've preached a sermon on heaven. Um, it's been a long time, which is to, you know, I should be critiqued for that. I probably ought to preach at least one a year, uh, just so we keep our eyes on the heavenly shore. Amen? Amen. Uh, in 1951, Florence Chadwick became the first woman to ever swim the English Channel in both directions. It's 21 miles um, or 33 kilometers. Uh, in 1952, she stepped into the Pacific and she was going to swim from Catalina Island to uh, the mainland shore of California, which is 26 miles or 42 kilometers. The problem that day it was really, some of you may know this story, it was extremely foggy and uh, she put in, she started to swim and it was so foggy she could barely even see her escort boats and her mother was in one of them, right? and Florence was, was getting extremely fatigued she couldn't see anything but fog and she wanted to be pulled out of the water and her mother said, no Florence you can make it you can make it, you're close And she, she said, I can't make it. And they pulled her out of the water. She was physically and emotionally exhausted. She was a half a mile. <laughs> she was just one half a, a, a mile from the shore at the news conference the next day. She said, all I could see was the fog. She said, if I could have seen the shore, I know I could have made it. I know that I could have made it if I had seen the shore. I think... That's maybe at least one of the things the Holy Spirit is teaching us as we've gone through these two books written by the Apostle Peter, First Peter and Second Peter. God has, I think, at least for me, I trust for you, blowing away the fog. So we could understand clearly why we're still here and where we're headed. At least for me, I have to confess, I think the Lord has blown away some of the fog for me. Peter has reminded us to look at Jesus. And he's reminded us in the last two chapters of first pardon me second Peter that he's coming. Jesus is coming and that has consequences for every human being. Particularly for the believer. We're supposed to know He's coming. We're supposed to live like He's coming. We're supposed to talk like He's coming. We're supposed to work like He's coming. We're supposed to love our spouse like He's coming. We're supposed to raise our kids like He's coming. You get the picture. He's coming. And it has yeah, a ton of impact. It should anyway in our lives. In so many words, I think in these last two books that we've studied together, God is showing us the shore. He's showing us the heavenly shore. And guess what? It's not far away, beloved. We're oh so close. We're oh so close. A good friend of mine I got an email this, this last evening. He's about my age. Old guy. had a stroke. The old guy was perfectly healthy. had a stroke. My point is, Life is precious. Life is a gift. Use it wisely. Make much of Jesus for your few moments. On this planet some years ago, I was studying that great text, James 4.14, where God says, man, you're a vapor upon the earth. It appear, you appear only for a little while and then you vanish away. Now, when I, every, whenever I've studied that text, I've always thought, well, this is a warning. And it is a warning. You know, Your life is short. Use it wisely. Make much of Jesus. But as I was studying heaven during that same time, I I saw there's also a promise there. What's the promise? You're close. Your life is a vapor. You're close. The shore's just... You're close. (laughs) It's not far. I love that. When I saw that, I thought, what a great promise from God in that what I used to just see simply as warning. God says, you don't have far to go. You're really close. And the exhortation, of course, is finish strong. You know, if you go read the book of Revelation nine times, uh, the Holy Spirit says, the overcomer shall receive the overcomer nine times. And you can almost hear Jesus calling out to us, come on, kick it on in, you're close. The shore is close. Come on, overcomer, come on. I'll just give you two of the nine. Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, I will grant to the overcomer to sit with Me on My throne. <laughs> Jesus says, come on. You can almost see Him on the shore. Come on. Come on, beloved. He's saying, come on. Revelation 21.7, My people shall inherit the kingdom prepared for them, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. It's one of the things that I think Jesus has been saying to us um, in these two books, First and Second Peter. I think Jesus is saying, Kick it on in. You're close. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 12, one of my favorite verses. I love, you know, I've often told people, if somebody just walked up and said, Jim, you got to preach, and I had no preparation, you know, it just fell to me, I'd preach Luke 12. I just turned to Luke 12. Jesus says, Your Father has chosen gladly to give you every good thing. Come on, kick it in. Live it like you mean it, right? Jesus says over in uh, Matthew 25, you may remember, He says, Prepare to receive your inheritance, the kingdom I've prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Kick it on in. You can make it to... The heavenly shore. Florence Chadwick couldn't see the shore and she lost heart. She lost heart. And in some measure, in First and Second Peter, God has been showing us the heavenly shore and He's saying, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Kick it on in. You know, the, the Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul was obviously an overcomer. If you've read about his life in Scripture, you remember what he told the Galatians. He said, do not grow weary in well-doing. Amen? Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. You may remember what he told the Philippians. He says, I'm pressing on. I forget what's behind. I'm forgetting my sin. Jesus is taking care of that. He says, I'm going forward. I'm reaching for what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. That's what I'm going to challenge you to do tonight. You know? Kick it on in. You're close. Some of us are closer than we can imagine. Some of us may step into the presence of Jesus tonight. We don't know. Again, life is a gift. God gives. God takes. This is God's prerogative. Jesus says, kick it on in. Paul, you may remember what He said to to the the Corinthians. He said, man, He says, I run... What does Paul say? He says, I run what? I run to win. Paul says, I'm going to finish strong. I'm going to kick it in. I know I'm close. I'm going to kick it in. You've got to love that about... The Apostle Paul. So what's the Bible communicating to to the Christian when it uses the word overcome? It's the Greek word nike. Some of you may be wearing it on your person. You know, the athletic shoe uh, appropriated the word. It's called Nike in the English, or it's pronounced Nike in the English. And it simply means that, that it means to conquer or prevail or get the victory. Overcomers always finish. Nike. God says, My people are Nike. It was a shocking thing for, for John to, to write this in his letter, 1 John, to the first century Christian, because as far as the world was, was concerned, the, the Christians were just a bunch of losers, man. I mean, you know, there's this, they're just a rogue religious sect. And guess what? They worship a dead carpenter from Nazareth. They were just a joke. God says, "My people overcome." <laughs> the world can call us a joke if they want. I don't. In all honesty, it doesn't matter to me what the world calls me or what the world thinks of me. You know, I have an audience of one. I don't know about you, but if you call yourself a Christian, you're supposed to have an audience of one. His name is Jesus, and you're living your life for Him, for His glory, and for. His honor. God says, My sons will reach and daughters will reach the, so- the shore. They will finish. And as John says in 1 John 5 4 and 5, because we're born of God, not because we're religious, not because I do the sacraments, because I'm born of God, it's God's work in me, I will finish. I will persevere because He is in me at work. I will finish the good work I've begun, as God says to the Philippians. And we overcome, again 1 John 5, 4 and 5, we overcome the world by our faith in Jesus Christ. Every born again Christian, which is to say every genuine Christian, will get to the shore. Why? Why? Because our God is God and our God holds us. Every true Christian will make it to the heavenly shore. And you remember, God says in the interim, be a good steward. For the few minutes here on this planet, be a good steward, mindful of my promised reward. God says, "Excuse me, build with gold, silver, and precious stones. God says to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. We're supposed to be looking at what Peter's talking about there in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. We're supposed to be looking at the new heaven and the new earth. You're supposed to take the long view, beloved. You're always supposed to take the long view. If you're a Christian, you're taking the long view. Every major decision and most of the middle range decisions and maybe some of the minor decisions, you make in light of the fact that you are a child of God and you're on your way to Him. This is the most important thing in your calculus. I'm God's, I'm on my way to Him. Everything else falls way down the list as far as what you take into account when you make those important decisions. So the challenge tonight is, as Peter's been challenging us, you take the long view. And if you're not taking the long view, I'm going to challenge you to repent tonight. You go home and you get before the Lord and you decide, I'm going to be a Christian, man. I'm going to be what God's called me to be. I'm going to be a disciple in the world. I'm taking the long view. I'm not taking the expedient way anymore, the comfortable way, the easy way, the way of the world. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to take the long view. I'm going to go with Jesus. You remember how Paul said it to the Corinthians. He says, Look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. And he told uh, the Colossians, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So one reason I am preaching on heaven tonight is to remind you, as Peter has reminded us, the shore is close. The shore is close. He's challenging us to finish and, and, and to remind, really to remind us what David wrote in the psalm that I read to you to open the service. Psalm 16.11 In thy presence, David writes, is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. In my view, this this verse comes as close as any other verse in the Bible to to encapsulate what it means to belong to God and spend forever with Him. Fullness of joy in His right hand holds pleasures forever. Forever. His people. In essence, David is saying, God is perfect joy. You may remember, you remember what God told Abraham? What was Abraham's reward? God. There were a lot of subordinate blessings that the Lord poured out on Abraham, but Abraham's greatest reward was God. That's true of you tonight, beloved, if you're a Christian. God is your reward. Do you live like God is your reward? Or are you still living like mammon is your reward? And success is your reward? And stuff is your reward? God is our reward. And He expects us to live like that's true. I did a brief word study on this... uh, Uh, The Psalm 1611, I looked at the word joy. It means gladness, delight, happiness. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Don't you love that? The serious business of heaven. I looked at the Hebrew word translated pleasures here. It, It connotes a sweetness, a delight, a loveliness, a beauty, a satisfaction, and a contentedness. You may remember Jesus' words in in John 15 and 17. Jesus doesn't just say that we're going to have a maximum human joy. Jesus says we're going to have, oh guess what, His joy. How big is Jesus' joy? It's huge. Yeah, infinite. We get Jesus' joy. He said, my joy will be in you and will be made full. That's a huge thought to me, beloved. I I hope it is to you. It's a huge thought to me. As human beings, I I, I was trying to think about this. Can you even imagine ten minutes of pure joy? Maybe you can. Maybe you can imagine ten minutes of pure joy. Can you imagine one day of absolute, pure, ecstatic, you know, heart-exploding joy? Can you imagine one day? It's hard to imagine, right? Right? Maybe ten minutes. God says it's forever. God says... I give you my joy which is irrepressible and omnipotent forever. Wait a minute. And you're distracted with the world? Are you serious? Are you serious? You know, sometimes it's like we live like we don't believe anything God's saying. If we really believe (laughs) infinite joy is ours, and we meditated on it and we thought about it, maybe some of our lives would be different. I love how C.S. Lewis talked about it. He said, we, won't only, we, we don't just taste this joy. To paraphrase Lewis, he says, we are united with the joy of God. We will pass into the joy of God. We will receive the joy of God into ourselves. We will become part of the joy of God. <laughs> I don't know, man. I get excited about it. You know, you're supposed to be, beloved, you're supposed to be meditating on heaven. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but when was the last time you meditated? You took an extended time and you just thought about heaven, all the promises of God. You're supposed to be thinking about this because you're supposed to be able to. Be, you're supposed to be looking at the shore, and be motivated by all that God has said and promise. You remember what Lucy said in C.S. Lewis the last battle when the children arrived in the new Narnia, which is the new heaven and new earth. She says, "I've got a feeling that." We've come to a country where everything is allowed. Oh, guess what? Everything is allowed in heaven. Everything. Every good thing God gives is allowed. Every one of those eternal pleasures in His right hand, it is allowed. Every one of them. He is giving us every good, delightful, joyful thing and He's giving it to us forever. There's no sin in heaven. There is no sin in heaven. It will be alien. It will be distasteful. It will be unthinkable. It will be unimaginable, even as it is unto Jesus. Every perfect, pure, good, delightful, joyful pleasure will be ours. God withholds no good thing from His people. And I want to say this, you know, uh, I get a lot of questions about the prosperity gospel, which I hate. The prosperity gospel tries to appropriate the promises of heaven and pull it into time. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless His people in time. Certainly, He does. But the lion's share of God's blessing is in eternity, beloved. Don't try to pull the blessings of God from eternity into time with a false gospel. So let's be mindful and careful of that. It's true there's more to heaven than than God, but not out of necessity, right? Right? He would have been enough. Not out of necessity. Jesus will fill up a billion eternities with His infinite beauty. But God has purposed to give us even more of Himself. Countless secondary joys. Earthly, physical, familiar joys. You know, I delight in flowers. I don't know if you delight in flowers. I've, I've learned something. I delight in flowers because I delight in the one who crafted the flower, right? I don't know if you begin if if you worship God like this out in the world. Um, I delight in sunsets because, you know, sunsets are stunning to me because I know the Creator of the sunset is a stunning God. Puppies are delightful to me. I love puppies, right? I don't want one. But I love puppies. They are delightful because I know their Creator is delightful. And recreation is fun because God is fun. We will be resurrected physical beings loving, worshiping, and serving a resurrected physical God, exercising dominion over His physical universe. God is taking back He's taking us back to paradise, and it will be a physical paradise, beloved. I hope you know that it is a new heaven and a new earth. We're supposed to know this. In his book, Randy Alcorn, I recommended it to you. I highly every Christian should read this book. It's just simply entitled Heaven. It's the most exhaustive work I've ever seen on heaven, and uh, it's worth the read. But he spends about 200 pages on miscellaneous questions commonly asked about heaven, including the pressing question, will my pet be there? And can I talk to him? I'm not even going to tell you the answer. I'm going to make you read the book. You'll have to buy the book and, uh, and read it. But Alcorn, Alcorn talks about, he's, he's basically just pulling off what Francis Schaeffer said. That the Christian doesn't have to restrain his imagination. We can let our imagination fly beyond the stars, our sanctified imagination, every good thing you can imagine. And more. You know, someone asked me one time, he said, Well, do you think my and back to you know the, the whole pet thing? Well, will my will my pet be there? And it, the Bible doesn't actually say, but it doesn't it sound like something God would do? I mean, this is what I'm talking about. A sanctified imagination. And Alcorn develops that in his book. The the new earth will be a garden of Eden-like paradise. It will not be Eden. It will be better than Eden. As we said a few weeks ago, God is going to redeem fallen creation... God gave us dominion over the earth. We forfeited that dominion to Satan. God is going to take it back for His glory and for our joy. It will be the new heaven and the new earth purified, purified by fire, redeemed, resurrected, and restored. Some of you may remember... Uh, C.S. Lewis coined a phrase for the fallen earth. He called it the shadow lands. This earth fallen and marred by the corruption of our sin, it's only a shadow of what the new earth will be like. In uh, the last battle, he used some dialogue with his characters to, to contrast old Narnia with new Narnia. The old earth to the new earth. Lewis writes this, all of the old Narnia that mattered will be drawn into the new Narnia. I love that. All that matters in this fallen world that matters to the people of God will be drawn into the new Narnia. Then he says, the old Narnia was a shadow compared to the real thing, the new Narnia, the new earth, Lewis writes, the new Narnia is a deeper country. I love this sentence. Every rock, every flower, and every blade of grass looked as if it meant more. (laughs) That may not mean anything to you, but it does to me. Everything means more. In the new heaven and the new earth, there's no corruption. There's no being marred by sin or, or being under the judgment of God. And Lewis put these words in the unicorn's mouth. The unicorn said, I have come home at last. Beloved, this is what heaven is, right? I, you know, yeah, I'm getting old, okay? But I tell people all the time, man, I'm just, I'm just closer. I'm just closer. I'm just closer to home. The unicorn continues, this is the land I've always been looking for. I belong here. The reason we love the old Narnia is because it looks a lot like the new Narnia. And I want to share something with you that Alcorn says in his book, and I think it's profound, and I think it's true. Nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. He says, we think that what we want is sex and drugs and alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a new, ca- a new car, a cabin at the lake, a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is is the person we were made for. His name is Jesus. And we need that place for which we were made. It's called the new heaven and the new earth. I think He's right on the money. In the new earth, we will see the real earth. It will be Eden-like. It will be breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, Theologian J.C. Ryle says, "...I pity the man who never thinks of heaven." But I love how Alcorn expands on it. He says, I pity the man who never thinks accurately about heaven. You know, Satan's been to heaven. Man, he knows how awesome it is. So he's got people, you know, believing that we're like going to be laying on clouds playing harps. I mean, who cares about that? I mean, if you're a harp player, maybe that sounds good. I I, I don't like that. I'm not interested. I'm sorry. I'm not interested in that. But we're not going to be that, beloved. It's not going to be an eternal church service. It's not going to be that. I love church services. But it's not simply going to be that. It's going to be infinitely more than that. We will be physical beings exercising dominion over an infinitely wide physical cosmos under the sovereign kingship of Jesus. You heard the text read earlier about the new Jerusalem. What will it be like? We know from Scripture Uh, And I'm not dogmatic here. There are some legitimate debates about the literal and figurative meaning of some of the text. But we know it's huge. The capital city of the New Heaven and New Earth, it's 2.25 million square miles. I did some calculations. East to west, it would cover about 60% of the continental uh, United States. And its height alone would encompass the entire Atlantic coast of the United States. I love how MacArthur talks about that, you know, those beautiful stones that John writes about in heaven. Listen to how John MacArthur talks about that. He said, The overpowering radiance of God's glory and beauty will refract and glisten through the entire city. The gems picture a brilliant, indescribable, spectacular exhibition of beautiful colors that send forth the light of God's glory and beauty. If you read that Revelation 21 account, there are 15 precious metals and stones used there of every imaginable Color So I say, Randy Alcorn's right, let your sanctified imagination run wild about what awaits us as we go forward. The New Jerusalem is God's city. Here's some of my extrapolation. It will be filled with natural wonders and parks and gardens and magnificent architecture and engineering marvels. Uh, thriving, dynamic, uh, engaging culture with perfect brotherhood and fellowship and love for everyone, you will not need any keys because we will love each other. There will be no crime. There will be no locks. The New Jerusalem will include all the best of God-inspired human culture and will have none of the Satan-inspired dark side of human culture culture. The new Jerusalem is not, is not the full extent of the new heaven and new earth. It's merely the center of it. Again, I want to say that we'll have an infinite cosmos to explore and enjoy. So the question is always raised with me. Um, is all what we'll do in heaven is worship Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every nanosecond of eternity will be, we will be hopelessly enamored with Him and we will never want to stop worshiping Him in heart-exploding worship celebrations. And we will never be able to stop worshiping Him as we rule as we reign, as we work, as we explore, as we discover, as we learn, as we teach, as we design, as we create, as we investigate, as we build, as we dream. One thing, I think I got this thought from Alcorn. I don't remember. But you know, they say we only use 10% of our brain. In heaven, we're going to use it all. Right? Can you imagine? The infinite intellectual pleasures of heaven. We will never be able to stop worshiping King Jesus as we, are fully, as we fully employ our unique gifts and talents in serving Him as we travel, as we talk to angels, as we talk to our pets, maybe. As we get to know our biblical and historical uh, heroes, I think of Abraham and David and Ezekiel. I'd like to talk to these guys. Maybe Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Adoniram and Justin... Judson? Maybe, you know, Rahab and Ruth and Mary? We will never be able to stop worshiping King Jesus as we love and touch and hug and eat and relax and hike and play and ski and ride horses on the beach and the other 10,000 things you love to do. You will worship Jesus every nanosecond. Those those secondary pleasures, those derivative pleasures, it's just a way that you will worship Him. It's just another way that you will worship Him. I love how John Piper talks about this. He says, man, in heaven we can really worship. We have the stamina for it, right? I mean, i you know, yeah, every once in a while, it doesn't happen much because I scream a lot, but every once in a while I'll catch one of you guys, you know, but usually it's when you're, okay, it's usually when you're jet lagged, Right? Nobody could, no one could possibly go to sleep when I'm preaching, right? Impossibile. <laughs> but, you know, Piper says, we got the stamina. we got the stamina to worship Him like He should be worshipped. I love that thought, beloved. I love that thought. Because you know, we all grow weary in this frame. And I just love that thought. I've got the stamina to worship Him as He ought to be worshipped. And there's no more sin getting in the way. Right? I've been delivered from myself. I can worship Jesus Christ. Like the core of my heart really desires to worship Him. No more sin. So in heaven, we get to do everything we want. Everything is allowed because there is no sin There is no wickedness. There is no iniquity. There is no evil. There is no trespass. There is no transgression. Those who allege that heaven will be boring or those who claim to be Christians and are not excited about the prospect of heaven, I want to say that they are simply unconverted. If you're not jazzed about heaven, I don't think you're a Christian at all. It's possible you could be a Christian and just simply be a theological babe. But it's time for you to get off of milk and get on to meat. And remember that the shore is close and Jesus is exhorting you to finish and to finish strong. I think much of the modern church or what is called the church today is not genuinely jazzed about heaven. It's because they're not genuinely jazzed about God. And if you're not genuinely jazzed about God, you just don't know Him. You have not met Him yet you have not met Him yet. If your Christianity is boring, it's because you're not walking with Him. You're not obeying Him. Because I tell you, beloved, if you begin to walk with Jesus, you begin to obey Jesus, your Christianity will not be boring. It will be anything but boring. It's the lesson we learned from Hebrews 11. That relationship between really living your faith and really encountering God. It's a life lived pointing at heaven. So let me ask you, are you looking at heaven, beloved? Are you looking at heaven? Does it inform the way you live every single day? I think I shared this verse with you last week. 1 John 3, 3 Everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Our, back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 Are you looking for the coming of Jesus and the new heaven and new earth? Therefore, verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3, therefore be diligent to be an overcomer. And I'm paraphrasing a bit there. Alcorn, I like how he talks about it. He says, you know, if if you set your wedding date and you're you're thinking about your wedding date, you know, you're less apt to be seduced, right? Because you're fixed on that. You're fixed on, on on your spouse. You're fixed on that great day. You're fixed on it. You actually can't think about much of anything else. That's the way heaven's supposed to be for you, beloved. The day you meet your groom. The day that we meet the groom. So let me ask you, Christian, in your idle moments when your mind gravitates to whatever whatever excites and interests you, are you thinking about the new heaven and the new earth? Let me challenge you. If you're not, begin that discipline. Begin that discipline. Discipline. You know, as a pastor, I get the question why all the time. <laughs> and a lot of times I just have to simply say, I, I don't know. I, I can't answer that. God doesn't speak to it directly and I can't, I can't directly answer that. Of course, we have many um, things that we can, can say. But people want to know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why isn't, why isn't God blessing me? What's going on in my life? Sometimes we will not know and we cannot know But sometimes what I want to say to you is that it has everything to do with heaven. We talked about this a little bit Thursday night at Young Adult Bible Study. Christ is not simply preparing a place for you. He's preparing you for that place. I know we don't think like this. But as Christians, we should be thinking like this. This may be a new thought to you. I'm going to read an excerpt from Alcorn. It's a little lengthy, but just bear with me. Then I'm about done. Randy Alcorn says, We all have dreams but often don't see them realized. We become discouraged and we lose hope. But as Christ's apprentices, we must learn certain disciplines. Apprentices in training must work hard to prepare for the next challenge. Apprentices may wish for three weeks of vacation, more pay, better benefits, etc., etc., but the Master may see that these would not ultimately, ultimately lead to success. The master may override his apprentice's desires in order that they might learn perspective and patience which will serve them in the future. Then he concludes, while the young apprentice experiences the death of their dreams, and some of you in here, you've had a dream die. The master is shaping them to dream a greater dream that will one day live out on the new earth. I love this thought. You're supposed to see your life as a continuation. You're just going to step through this door and you're going to be there. And who you are goes with you except for the sin, praise the Lord. And you're just going to continue to grow and develop as a human being. As we saw last week, Peter said, Peter said, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness in light of the fact you're the people of God and Jesus is coming back and the shore is close. So what sort of people ought you to be? That was the big point last week. So friend, I want to ask you, are you heavenly minded? Do you have an audience of one? Have you given yourself to Him? Are you looking at the beam of seed? Are you ready to give an account? Are you building with gold and silver and precious stones? Are you laying up treasures uh, for yourself in heaven? God says, this is how my children live life on this planet. So, you know, take an inventory. Does your life look like that? God says, this is how my kids live. Beloved, I want to exhort you, the shore is very close. We're almost there. Peter is exhorting us there between... Uh, Verses 13 and 14 of 2 Peter chapter 3. We're almost there. Kick it on in and finish strong. That's what I'm exhorting you to do. You know, there's this beautiful truth of uh, if you look at the parable of the talents and the parable of the menace, you are actually filling out part of your eternity by how you by your stewardship right now. You know, this is what Jesus says. You go to the, you remember the, the, the five talent guy, and the, he, he made five talents, and, and the master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were uh, faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. I love that. And if you go over to the parable of the menas over in Luke 19, you remember the, 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 the master gave them some funds. And he said, "Go do business. That's what you're supposed to do, beloved. Are you doing business with God? Are you doing business for God? God, whatever your gifts are, and your, your your resources, and your talents, and your attributes, God means for you to do business with Him. His business. You remember He gave He gave one guy three minutes, which is equivalent to three, uh, or He gave him a minute, which is equivalent to three months' wages. And the guy did well. He was a good steward, and." Uh, God says, well done. He said, rule over ten cities forever. My point is the disproportion between uh, what we do and what God rewards us with. My point is, uh, it may seem small in your eyes what you do, but it's not small in God's eyes. Amen? If you're doing it for the Lord, it's not small in God's eyes. The guy had three months' worth of wages. He did a good job with it. And the Lord said... Rule over ten cities. Well done. Isn't that what you want to hear, beloved? Well done. Well done. So, are you an overcomer? Will you live your faith huge? Will you live at large? Will you look at the Bema seat? Will you finish strong? I want to say to you, you're almost home. You're almost home. Don't lose heart. Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God says, this is how my sons and daughters live. They live like I'm God and like I'm good and like I'm a promise keeper and like I'm holding them as I've promised. So, beloved, God says, my kids desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, I am not ashamed to be there." God, so I exhort you tonight and I say to you the shore is close, do not lose heart. Meditate frequently on heaven. That's your home. Don't let the world you know distract you. Keep your eyes on the beam of seat. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Take the long view. Take the long view every day. It may be your last day. Don't you want to be living the long view on your last day? Or do you want to be, as I've been saying the last few weeks, or do you want to be like immersed in the minutia? Or do you want to be doing what Jesus redeemed you to do? Sometimes, you know, you got to be in the minutiae. Right? But we don't give ourselves to it and we don't let it steal our lives and, and attention. So I'm going to close with this great little text, uh, Revelation. Let's see. Yes, Revelation 21. I'm going to begin in verse 22. And in the New Jerusalem, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. So the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is (laughs) the Lamb. Dropping down to chapter 22. And He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His bondservants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face. And His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night And they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, I confess my sin before You tonight that I have allowed extended periods of time to go by and not think deeply about the new heaven and the new earth, to not think deeply about all that You've promised. I confess my sin that sometimes I get distracted. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. (laughs) What a great God. What a great salvation. What great promises. Lord, I pray that we would keep these things in mind, in the forefront of our mind. And that we would take the long view. In every decision we make, the long view is in the calculus. We bring in the long view. We're looking for, we're looking toward the coming of Jesus, the new heaven and the new earth. That's why I'm here to proclaim Jesus and to remind everyone he's coming back. And as we see in the text in 2nd Peter chapter 3, this old earth will burn up. And he will bring forth the new heavens and the new earth with infinite joys and pleasures for His people. Oh Lord, I pray that we would take the long view. We would take the long view. Help us, Lord, I pray. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.